Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome along to the Rocky Road Boxing Podcast with me, your host, Kevin Byrne. Today we're joined by a man who's seen it all in the amateur and pro rings and has even starred in a couple of boxing moves as well. It's Damien Denny. Welcome to the show, Damien. Thanks, Kevin. Thanks for having me. How are you keeping? What are you up to these days, Damien? I do a wee bit of personal training. Uh, I'm just a couple of days a week. Just keep, keep my hand in. Um, more for like business people who want to keep fit, but they want to use boxing as part of their part of the training. So that's what I'm doing at the minute. I also have five daughters, which keep me busy. Absolutely. And uh, is, it, is it a growing industry, this uh, keep fit boxing thing? It is. Well, I've been doing it now for uh, quite a number of years, but it's getting, a lot of people are doing it. You know, so, but it's good that I have the boxing background. It's sort of, that, that, that carries a lot of weight. You know? Con- contact or non-contact, is it? Um, I do. I don't do any sparring or anything, but it's just uh, like a lot of pad work and stuff. So I don't do. Uh, I wouldn't be. I wouldn't be sparring with anybody. No. So, Damien, thanks for joining us today. We're going to discuss some of your amateur and professional careers and life after boxing as well. So, let's take it right back to the start. We were talking before coming on the call, and uh, you know, you're in three elite senior finals in a row: 85, 86, 87. And uh, you had a busy and a successful amateur career in the Irish Fest. Yeah, it did. Yeah, yeah. It all started back in Lisburn um, at nine years of age. Myself and my older brother uh, joined the Lisburn Boxing Club, basically because it wasn't really probably the same story as a lot of boxers of my age. There wasn't really a lot to do, you know. So we went to the boxing club. We both stuck at it. And we were both quite handy at it. My older brother had a serious car accident when he was 18. He was sort of along the level, just done a bit of sparring with Byron McGuigan, um, sort of that era. Uh, but he had two brain operations, so he had to he had to give it up. So and I just I just continued on with it. So I was nine years of age and just fell in love with it, to be truthful. Absolutely bitten by the bug as soon as I walked in the box club, got the smell of the gloves and the rest is history, as I say. Yeah. He he was your older brother. He's my older brother, three years older. Yeah, it must have been a massive uh, shock to the system when he had a car accident. It was it was a big it was a big shock. He, wow. he's, thank thank yeah. God, it's very now you know he, he pulled through, but was on a life support machine in a coma for twenty days. And what happened? 
it didn't look good. It was just a head-on car accident he had with that when he was eighteen, and um, two brain. I say two brain operations. So for fifteen-year-old, that's like the your worst nightmare. It's a hundred percent. Yeah. <laughs> and I was used to sparring with him. So sparring somebody who was three years older than me. Then when I got in my guys my own age, they, they, they just didn't have the same sort of strength or punching power. So he actually brought me on, you know, every day after school, it was home, shirts off. Um, I mean, we'd, we'd go out for an hour, you know, sweat and blood would be flying out of us, you know. But it was all good. It was all good fun. You could stand up for yourself in your own house. You could stand up for yourself anywhere. Exactly. Especially somebody three years older. I can't yeah. notice at that age, you know, at 10 to 13, like that's a big age gap. And then from like 11 to 14, he was always three years older, three years stronger. So when I got in with people in my own age, it was like, it was a piece of cake, you know? So. Did you start, yeah. did you start the usual pathway, kind of Ulster, then Irish titles, or did you lose a yeah. few on the way up, or how did you get on? At the time, it was, um, you just had Ulster juvenile titles. Yeah, uh, there was no kind of anthems then, it was just Ulster juvenile titles. I never lost. I never lost in a Ulster, an Ulster uh, title fight, if you want to call it that. Juvenile, youth, junior, senior, all the way right up through to term pro at 20. I never lost. So I must have been all right at it. You know? <laughs> Doing okay. Um, first <clears throat> down twice to Dublin, 11, got beat by a very famous family from Dublin. One of the brothers beat me. And beat me, he beat me. Uh, I was actually, I was actually a bit sick before I went down. It was nerves and stuff, but it was, uh, you probably would have heard of the Sutcliffs. Just about, yeah. Yeah, it was Tommy. Tommy beat me. Tommy beat me the first year I went down. Uh, he beat me, this, I think a guy from Moat beat me the second time. And the third year was the, was the first year that the, the championships had ever been held outside of the stadium. We had to go out to volunteer. Because Charlie Pride had actually booked the National Stadium to, for concerts. Ah, the Charlie Pride, wow. Yeah, yeah. So the 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 Irish Championships were held out in Volunteer, and it was actually it was a good omen for me because I won the I won the Irish Juveniles that year when I was thirteen. Um, and then I lost. I can't remember who beat me. I think it was possibly Barry Joyce beat me. And then I beat Barry in the next year's uh, All Ireland Finals uh, for my second. I think it was a youth. And then I won junior, senior, stuff like that. So I won, I won five Irish titles all in. So uh, two juveniles. I, no, one, yeah, a juvenile, a youth, a junior, and two seniors. And uh, they wouldn't let me enter the under 19s because I'm ready box for Ireland. There was an under nineteen, an Irish under nineteen uh, thing just started at the time, and they wouldn't let me enter because of a ready box senior, which I thought was a bit unfair, you know. Yes, it sounded all right. Um, your trips down from from the north down to Dublin at first, how did you find it? Like it was still the troubles were on. It was hostile territory, maybe. How did you get on? Were you made to feel welcome, or were you made to no, made to know this is not your town? We love Dublin. We we love going down to Dublin. We absolutely love. My first trip down was with Lisburn with John Rogers. Um, cracking time. We stayed along with the guys out of Clonard. Um, Paul Brady, David Brady, Charlie Brady. Um, who else was there? Tommy McCaffrey, I think, was there as well. But no, it was just because like in the in the 70s, 80s, you know, it was like Dublin was like a, a faraway world to us. You know, it was like a great time. We also down at Easter. 
um, Easter holidays, so we got to go down, and we're usually down for four or five days. So it was brilliant. Uh, but you, I grew up in Lisburn, Kevin, which is uh, grew up in a predominantly Protestant area. Yeah. We never had a problem. Um, we always you always were aware of the troubles, but it's like anything when you're born into it and you grow up in it, it's just second nature to you. you just you just get on with your life. You know, yeah. you, make, you make the necessary adjustments. You know. You do hear about uh, the teams from the north, even in GA, like in and and boxing. You you wanna you wanna hear inclusive stories. And you wanna talk about inclusive stories all the time, but then yeah. you do hear about the odd comment that's thrown. Just you know, even in a sporting arena, just to unsettle your opponent, uh, the odd comment is thrown, and it can bother some people. And it's water off a duck's back to someone else. Yeah, no, I, I never experienced anything. We got never experienced any sectarianism or, or nothing. You know. Even when we went across in the East Belfast over the Lely Hall, like I was growing up in the, probably in the worst times of the Troubles, you know, the, the early 80s. I was sort of coming 13, 14, born in 66. So it was 14 in 1980 when the Troubles were rife. But when we, we were able to cross the Shankland Road, Lely Hall, um, Kern Lodge Boxing Clubs, never got a thing said to us, you know. And I, I would like to think it was the same. When, when when they came to us, you know. Child's play, yeah. Do you yeah. remember your route to the final in your first elite, uh, the year you won your first elite title? 1985, so you're 19 years old. Yeah. Uh, you make it to the final, and uh, in the opposite corner is the fearsome Billy Wallace. Do you remember who yeah. you beat on the, on the way to the final in the light welterweight category? Who did I beat? Um... I don't, I don't, I don't know. I don't have the list there. <laughs> oh, do you have? I was actually eighteen no. because I was nineteen in April and the championships were in March, so I was eighteen. I was almost nineteen. Uh, um, who did I fight first? Give me a clue, Kevin. No, I, a... I, I don't have the list. I'm asking you. Do you remember? No. It's it's thirty six oh, years yeah. ago. I'm not asking you to. Yeah. Or thirty seven years ago oh. now. Um, there was there was, a, there was a, uh, an English guy with Irish. Irish heritage. He, he came over from England, but I don't know what was the welterweight. He was from Birmingham. And I beat him, and I think Billy beat one of Frank O'Sullivan. One of Frank O'Sullivan's lads from Birmingham City. Must be. Is that who, is that who it was? Yeah, Corkman. Yeah, he was the head coach over there. All oh, right, okay. Um, was it Reid? It wasn't John Reid. Was it John Reid used to come over for the championships? And I think Billy beat Noel Reid that year in the semi final. I can't even remember who it beat. I'm really good with dates and names, but you, you, you've, you've got me with that one. <laughs> Apologies. I can but, tell you, um, I can tell you who won before you. Brendan Lowe won the lightweight title, yeah. and after yeah. you, John Reed did win the, the welterweight title. But you're fighting Billy Walsh in the light welterweight final. And yeah. uh, what did you know about Billy before you first fought him? He was even back well, then he was the top operator. You're you're 18 yeah. years old like, coming up against him. Billy was Billy was the kingpin, you know. I met him and I actually picked the box for Ireland, I think, before I won the Irish seniors, because I won the Irish juniors. And they picked me. It was a double night welterweight. Um, they wanted two on, on the on the card, and it was in Jury's of Cork, a Jury's Hotel in Cork. And Billy was a number one night welterweight, and I was a number two night welterweight. Um, the papers, because I was so young, didn't give me a chance in the international. I was fighting a guy called Keith Parry, who was an established uh, Welsh international. They, the papers, and it's, it's funny, 
you know, you, you shouldn't believe everything you read. But when you're when you're 18 years of age and you're, you're reading the papers and saying this this has come too early for for Denny, you know, he's not expected to win. And um, and there was a bit of nerves, a bit of uh, trying to make the weight. But I got up at four o'clock in the morning, was walking about the the corridors of the hotel, and bumped into Billy. Billy was sitting, and he was getting a tight to do the weight as well. And we sat down and we spoke till breakfast was served at seven o'clock, whatever. He was he didn't put an arm around me, but really reassured me and said it'd be okay and just gave me good words of advice. And I went down and stopped again the second round. It was showing an RTE. So that was the start of, of that was that's how I got to know Billy was. I actually knew him before uh, we 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 fought each other in the first fine in eighty five. Uh again <clears throat> Is that, is that normal behavior from an opponent before you fight him? Because usually there's, there's, you know, you want to put up a brave face. You want to put up a front and show this guy, you're not going to get into my head, I'm going to get into yours. Was his approach, was he trying to no. kill you with kindness or was he just not genuine? <laughs> I don't know whether exactly the lad's trying to kill me. I think Billy's just a nice fella. You know, he just, he just, um, and maybe thought we, we wouldn't meet in a final. I don't know. But uh, again, in the final, the Irish seniors, we call them seniors. I think you call them elite now. Uh, I, I call them seniors as well. Yeah, I just over it. Yeah, yeah. Again, nobody gave me a chance because Billy was. I think Billy had the the best record on the international team. He was I'm near sure he was reigning champion. Uh, so nobody gave me a chance except myself, my father, and Mickey Hawkins. They were probably the only three or the other two that that believed in me. Michael Hawkins was fantastic coach, fantastic at um, sort of working out game plans and instilling belief in you know, instilling that you know at eighteen, I was I was on the up you know, and and making make sure that, that I wasn't going to forget that. And we I remember just we were working routines in the past, just day in day out. I actually worked for Mickey at the time as well. So I'd go to work for Michael. I'd go to work for Michael from nine o'clock in the morning in the shop, and then we'd go over at lunchtime. We'd have a game of squash, which was always nearly come to fisty cuffs. Great, um, great battles with them on, on the squash court. We'd do our circuits, then I'd go back to work, then I'd go back to Michael's house, have a late bit of dinner, then we'd go to Holy Trinity, and we'd have our spar and our pod work or our bag work and our skipping and all. But I mean, I was also the first one in the ring with Mickey in the Irish senior final, uh, just working drills on 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 what we're going to do to beat Billy. You know, and, and he, he went he back won. a long way with Billy. So he went back a couple of years at least. I think he coached Billy in a European tournament in '83 or '82. So yeah. they, they knew each other a long time as well at that stage. Yeah. Yeah. How did you not come out? What shot was it, or was it just the ref stop? Or what happened? I think it was a right hook. It was a right hook to the body and a right hook to the head, and he went down. And he got back up again on doctory legs, and I gave him three or four other headshots, and the referee stepped in and stopped it. So that was the, that was my first senior final. Another so, another fight that year was uh, Sam Story beat Steve Collins in the middleweight final. They were to meet again in the pros. Collins got his revenge. That's right, in Boston, I think it was, wasn't it? Yeah. yeah. Did you see the fight at seventy five kilos in the uh, stadium? Yeah. The Irish title, yeah. Mm-hmm. I remember Steve coming in and saying the way like an eighteen just won an Irish title, and and uh, another nice fellow was at his wedding. It was this uh, a few years back? It was he invited me over to his wedding over in England. Yeah, it was uh, who else was on it? Uh, Kieran Joyce was on it. Kieran Joyce won, yeah. From uh, uh, from the first final, Neil Doty beat Michael Thompson. 
Then Sean yeah. Casey beat Jared Hawkins. My my clubmate, yeah. Yeah. That was, was a big shot. That was a big shot. Was it? Then there was then there would have been the, the, the favourite. Jerry would have been the favourite there. Yeah, she was just yeah. back from Los Angeles the previous year as well, wasn't he? And that's right. And that same year we went to the European Championships in Budapest. Uh myself, Sean Casey, God rest him, Neil Dotty. Sam Story was there, I think. But Sean yeah. Peter John Murphy won a bronze. John Kids won a bronze. He was the only medalist on the team that year. Yeah. That's right. Yeah, that's right. Eric yeah. Sutcliffe, Kieran Joyce, Sam Story, uh, yeah. Phil Sutcliffe, Neil Duddy, Peter Murphy, uh, Brendan yeah. O'Hara. So that's it. Yeah. Um, it was a fantastic, fantastic trip that was as well over the Budapest in 1985. You know. So we, we thought we were going over to like an Eastern Bloc country where everything was going to be dead dure and people were going to be running about with solid faces. It was complete opposite. It was fantastic. <laughs> we had a ball. Yeah. yeah. It was a difficult, difficult tournament for the team. Yeah. Derek Sutcliffe was absolutely, you know, he's a hoot. He's really? Yeah. He's, he was legendary. He actually lived in Denmark at the time, Kevin. And he used to fly home to fight in the Irish seniors. And if he lived over in Denmark. I don't, I don't know where he is now. I don't know if he's still living in Denmark, but um, we had a great trip. Is, yeah. he, a, is he a brother, Phil's? Yeah. Younger, younger brother. Okay, I'll be on to correct us, I'm sure. Yeah, Derek beat Bobby McCarthy in the 85 final, who yeah. went on to be a professional in, in America, I think. Brendan Lowe beat Peter Murphy. Then Damien Denny knocks out Billy Walsh. John Reed beat Brendan O'Hara. Kieran Joyce beat Paddy Ruth. Sam Story. Yeah. Sam Story beats Steve Collins. Ger Lawler beat Dan Curran. Jim O'Sullivan beat Tony Hallett. And Brendan DC beat Big Joe Egan from Donora yeah. Avenue. Yeah. <laughs> Another character, Kevin. Big Joe, what was he like back then in 1985? It probably wasn't that far, that long before he went over to spar Mike Tyson, got his moniker as the, the toughest white man on the planet. It was Joe Egan was the first person ever to tell me about Mike Tyson. We we were we went to America to box against America, and uh, Joe was telling us all about he really being to spar with with this guy um, Mike Tyson. And if you remember, Tyson wore Joe's shorts for his first couple of his international shorts for his first couple of fights. So it was it was Joe Egan was the first man to tell me about Mike Tyson on the way over in the plane. Yeah, we boxed in Atlantic City and Syracuse. We boxed the number one team in Atlantic City and we we we, we fought like a provincial team in Syracuse a couple of days later. Did you keep yeah. an eye on your uh, opponents at international level? Because in, in Atlantic City you'd be a guy called Larry LaCursor, who That's went right. on to fight uh, Winky Wright, Costas Zoo. Julio Cesar well, Chavez in his 103rd fight or 102nd fight or something. Well, Julio Cesar Chavez in fought. Yeah, I think Chavez yeah. stopped in seven rounds. Am yes. I right? Yeah, I, I think he, he stopped him anyway, yeah. Yeah, I think he stopped him in seven rounds. Yeah, he was, he was a good kid. I beat it. I beat, I beat uh, the course on points. But he broke two of my ribs with the last shot he threw at me. Come up with a big uh, uppercut and broke two ribs and then I couldn't fight against the original team like four days later. Right, but I always, yeah. I, always kept an, I always kept an eye on the opponents after that if they turned pro or anything. And I think he went unbeaten for a while, and then um, as as happens, isn't it? As always happens, really. Like you yeah. go to go to fifteen, sixteen, and all, and then you know things yeah. start to change. Eighty six was a massive year in your amateur career. You retained the national title, yeah. Um, again against Billy Walsh. Uh, unlucky you to come up against him twice, but um, yeah. you did retain the title. Steve Collins won the title that year. Tony Delacry from Limerick, a few others. Uh, John Lowy won one as well. Johnson Todd. So there's yeah. great, great names from 80s boxing there. 
It was. Yeah. It was uh, it was good year for boxing. You know? Definitely was. There was no there was no place like the stadium, uh, Ireland against England. Place used to be bummed thereafter. And I remember uh I think we were getting beat six or seven nil, which was unheard of in the National Stadium. And John Lloyd got in and beat John Davison, who ended up becoming world middleweight champion. I think John Lloyd beat him on points, and then I stopped Keith Wall. I think they beat us nine two or eight two, whatever it was. But the the nights in the National Stadium were fantastic. They were, you know, the, just sitting watching the fights that hers in the back of your neck were standing. Mm. It was um, it was a good year for boxing. Then again, I suppose everybody says that. Yeah. You can see yeah. in that 86 elites, there's new talent coming up as well. I think it's Michael Carruth's first elite final. He loses to Thomas Tobin in the lightweight final. But there's uh, yeah. up and comers. I think it's the first final that uh, Joe Lawler fought Paul Buttermer in and they ended up taking on each other a lot. Um, and yeah. it's a big year for you. You go to the World Championships in May in Reno. Yeah. World Stand- Championships, Kevin, yeah. Um, yeah. Went, to, went to Reno. Uh, had two fights, two wins, and then box Candelario Duvergia. He he beat me on points. The first guy I beat was Sarkando Mikado, I was saying to you earlier. He um he ended up boxing the draw with Bernard Hopkins for the World of Middleweight title. And then Hopkins beat him in return. So I two good wins and then I came up against the I think he was world number one at the time. He was definitely double world, double Olympic champion, I think he was at the time. The Cuban. Uh, the Cuban, yeah. yeah, and then he lost in the final to Kenny Gould. That's the one. And I, yeah. I actually would have preferred to fight Gould because Duvergeel was about six foot, six foot one, big rangy fighter. Where Gould sort of came walking onto a lot more, sort of suited my style box box fighter. But I just couldn't get near Duvergeel. He was just well, I was only I was twenty, I think it was. Uh, yeah, you just turned uh, twenty. Yeah, just turned. He was. Uh, he was. 28, 29, I hadn't really matured properly. I think if I had a fall when I was 25, 26, when the strength and maturity that I had when I turned pro, I think it might have been a different different case, you know, but I turned pro, stupidly, I turned pro in in uh, 87, sort of, I got a bit dis- disillusioned with the, the amateur game, and I should have waited for the Olympics, I think I released, it's a big regret, it's nice to say you're an Olympian, you know. Yeah, of course. Well, before sure. before we move into your turn in pro, like uh, yeah. any stories from Reno? I'm sure that was a that was an amazing experience. You had Hawkins there, like probably watching you like a hawk. Uh, mm-hmm. Probably knew you knew your tendencies more than anyone. I don't know what those tendencies are. You might tell us, but uh, no, me and Michael, uh, me and Michael room together. We did yeah. Yeah, room with the coach. You're not going to get yeah, to know about it. Yeah, yeah, but listen, the fun we had, the crack we had. Kefilio Stevenson was there. He, he won his he won his third world title. At the '86 Reno Championships, and that was the biggest gathering since. Because remember, uh, uh, Moscow, America boycotted, and then '84, the communist countries boycotted. So that was the biggest gathering of boxing since mm-hmm. 1976. And then they moved the age. They think they moved the age limit to let Teofilo Stevenson win his third world title. So that was three Olympics he won and three world titles, and he was. I mean, it, it was. The big guy was a god when he walked around the stadium. He had a big jacket on, like like Buffalo Bills jacket, you know, a big cowboy thing with tassels on it. I was always sort of accompanied by two stunning looking women and just an entourage around him. And, but whenever you asked him for a photograph, there was nothing 
no problem. They were arms out around us, you know. And he was, was he six foot four, six foot five? He just seemed to be a giant, you know. And there was word, there was word then that they'd offered, they were offering him money to fight Muhammad Ali over six rounds. I think they offered him millions. So he was like, we couldn't believe we were sitting in the same stage rooms as Dave Stevenson, you know. Fantastic. And Le- Lennox Lewis was eliminated, I think, in the quarters or the, the, yeah. the quarterfinals. Was it? So, like, that could have been a great super heavyweight final. Yeah, Lennox was still very young at the time. Lennox would have been about 20, 21, I think. Lennox was born in 66 as well. Um, I think Lennox was at heavyweight and, and, and Felix, or Teofilo Stevenson was super heavy. Right, okay, okay. Yeah, and had, uh, and I think, I think Felix Savon was the heavyweight. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, he was. What was what was Reno like for a group of uh, young Irish lads? It was fantastic. Yeah, we went out to the Hilton after all the competition was over. We went to the Hilton and and uh, we, I actually got picked up. I think it was the first time I ever had a beer. I got two out of the crowd to go up and dance on the stage after it had like one bottle of Heineken. You know, I think Michael Hawkins was behind him going, "Pick him, pick him." You know? So I got up and I could hardly I could hardly say my name. And to this day, I think Michael Hawkins still has that same bottle, the empty bottle of Heineken in his in his uh, in his study. So it's yeah, it was, it, 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 yeah, it was Camino, Nevada was fantastic. You know? We yeah, went see- up the, we, we went up the Lake Tahoe with yeah. uh, the Canadians, Lennox Lewis, and a cracking photograph of Lennox Lewis. Um, John Beckles, English fighter, cracking fighter, light heavyweight. Um, all the, the full Canadian team was just littered with, with stars. Egerton Marcus, Asif Dar, uh, Don Shera, who fought Chris Eubank for the World Midweight title down in Brighton. When Eubank headbutted him behind, Don Shera went behind him and, and Eubank headbutted him and Don Shera went down as if he'd been shot. Um, but Eubank got the decision. Don Shera was there. Um, the wee flyweight kid, he was a cracker. I think he fought for a world title. Neil escapes me now. But right after the whole team was all like littered with future world champions, the Canadian team. Yeah. Well, they were back in Edinburgh, as as was the Northern Ireland team for the uh, Commonwealth Games in July. You didn't get too much time to to rest up after yeah. Reno. It was straight back yeah. into action, May to July. Uh, yeah. Commonwealth Games took place in Edinburgh. And sure. uh, you managed to pick up, I suppose, was it the best moment of your amateur career? Yeah. <laughs> One of the worst, Kevin. No. No, uh, I lost two and it was one down there who had uh, um, was very very heavy handed he was not combat he was 16 or 26 people out before he fought me um, beat me on points he dropped me in the in the end of the second round I think it was and the famous Harry Carpenter we were always told whenever the bell rang you run back to your corner Whenever I got up, the bell went and I run back in the corner and Harry Carpenter says, if I was that young man, I would keep running all the way back to Belfast. You know? So, but I got up and he beat me on points. I actually, I think I got a public warning for use of my head, which I don't think I should have got it. But uh, some people were coming in the dressing room after and says, I think he just won that. My dad was always answering me. My dad was, was there. He says, no, nah, he says, he just lost it. So. It wasn't. It wasn't a great trip. It sort of come from being. I was number one in Britain in the boxing news in the, in the ratings. The last it was since eighty five, eighty six, and even eighty seven before I turned pro. But eighty six, I was number one in Darren Darren mode maybe four or five. And you all sort of went through the boxing news ratings. They were like your bible. 
Um, I thought I would have won it. So I came away in the bronze medal, but that's you know, third place. What, what good third place, you know. And then you still have the medal, I'm sure. I've got the medal somewhere. I actually went to Greece with a club mate of mine, John Erskine. Remember John Erskine? He won a, he won two or three Irish senior titles. We went to Corfu, and I was sitting on the beach. Obviously, it was, I was on a big downer because I, I thought I was going to win a gold medal at the Commonwealth Games and go on to whatever. And I was sitting on the beach, and I got the Daily Mirror newspaper. I was sitting reading it and opened it up, and there it was—a big double spread, there and there, the best thing since sliced bread. And even yeah, Mickey Duff getting fifty thousand pound to turn pro. So even on my holidays, I couldn't get away from him sitting there going, "I just close them and ah, oh, I don't need to read this." But we actually offered him a fight um, when we, we we both turned pro. And when I was with Frank Warren, I left Frank Warren. I was with Barry Hearn, and Barry Hearn tried to set up a fight for me with with Darren Dyer, but it fell through. He had trapped there in the shoulder one of the times, and something else happened. But we never fought again. You know, but I would have liked to got I would have liked to got my revenge on him. You know, yeah. But he got the big money for turning pro, and I suppose I've done okay. But. I still would have liked to turn pro with Blaze of Glory, you know. But. You said your dad uh, always would tell you the truth. What was your dad's background and what did he work at or what sort of a man was he? My dad's a meteorologist again. He's a great hurler, hurled for Antrim Miners, uh, played Gaelic for Antrim Miners as well. So good sporting background, never boxed, but always said he, he, he wished he had it. You know. Followed me everywhere, took me from when I left Lisburn Boxing Club, I joined the Holy Trinity, which was about. 16, 15, 16 mile away from Lisburn, but a really difficult place to get to. We had to get like, two buses. So every day my dad come home from work, we'd jump in the car and he'd drive me down to Holy Trinity. So I always supported me no matter where I went. I think the only time he didn't come away was the World Championships. Came to Commonwealth Games, didn't come to the European Championships. A bit more difficult to get the Budapest. But any internationals, there senior fights, he was always sitting there. And no matter what, if I thought, if my first loss at pro came out, I said, well, what did you think? And he said, he just lost it. You know, so always brutally honest with me. And if I won and I, or if I lost and he thought I won, he would tell me the same thing. He'd always so, tell you which way the wind was blowing. Yeah, exactly. He was never one to blow smoke. He was never like, <laughs> oh, you've done this. He just told you the way it was. And that's where, did he work, where did he work as a meteorologist? <clears throat> he started out in Fermanagh. That's where he met my mama. Um, who just died but two weeks ago. He just buried my mum about two weeks ago. Sad, sad time. Condolences, Damien. I'm sorry yeah. to hear that. Thanks, Kevin. Yeah, yeah, great woman. And she, again, she looked after me. What age did she get to, Damien? She was 82. Okay. Yeah. Had, she had dementia. She, she took dementia. Um, yeah, it was, you know, her quality of life was starting to go, Kevin, but it's still not easy saying goodbye to a loved one, you know, my mother and, I mean, I can do no wrong, you know, she just supported yeah. me 100%. So he, he, met my, he met my mom down there and then they went to Norfolk in England. He was sort of assigned to the RAF with the, the meteorologist side of it. And then they went to Tobruk out in Libya where my older brother was born, the guy who boxed with me, he was born in Libya in 1963 and then returned and returned to Lisbon and that's where we we. We lived for a lot of years until 1990, and then we moved to Finnegan, which is just on the outskirts of Belfast. Yeah. So, we've done a bit of travel. We were going to go and live in Cyprus in 72, but then the Civil War broke out. So, we, yeah, we didn't. Yeah. No, but it's, he's, he remembers Tobruk, Libya, fondly, you know, when Gaddafi just got into power. 
And he had a great time out there, you know, so traveled a bit with his job. Yeah, um, so he, he saw the world. He saw the world. Uh, you, he saw the world through his job and you saw through yours. Yeah. Yeah, through the boxing. Yeah, we'll move. We'll move to your last senior final. So uh, we've done. We've given the other two their due place. So we'll give. Uh, we'll give eighty seven a, a quick run through as well. Yeah. Um, you know, Roy Nash picks one up. Michael Carruth gets his first one. Gordon Joyce wins uh, at light welterweight, yeah. and Billy Walsh gets back to the top at welterweight. Now you've both moved up to welterweight, and yeah. uh, he beats you on points. What happened yeah. in the third fight? I think I got a bit complacent. You know, Billy would probably say differently. You know, I I probably torture him, not not so much on social media, but any of the guys that boxed on the, the elite team when Billy was head of the, the high performance team. Um any of the guys come up, any of the Conlins or uh we Paddy Michael. We fly with Paddy Paddy Barnes. Paddy Barnes. I was, I was at a couple of functions. And I, I would go over and say, oh, your coach, I said, I beat him twice, you know. But I wouldn't tell him that Billy beat me a third time. Oh, leave that one out, yeah. I'd be a bit of amnesia, forget about that one. But um, the next time I'd meet them, they would say, oh, you didn't tell us Billy beat you in the third to the third one. I said, well, he didn't really beat me, got to the station. But it was close. It was very, very close. And I think maybe I'd, I'd beat him twice and the judges down there were, were favouring Billy at that time. I'd done an exhibition one down in... I beat him twice in a, a, a done an exhibition one down in in Wax in Waxford, and it was just we'd done a bit of sparring as well when we and for for Ireland we were boxing for Ireland and stuff like that. So it was just, just give me something different, you know. But you know, you got to decide. So we we'll say no more. <laughs> so, but you, you said earlier on, and uh, it's a it's a massive regret that you didn't try and stick around for the Seoul Olympics, nineteen eighty eight. You would have been just twenty two years old when they took yeah. place but instead you went professional at 21 you got an offer from Frank Warren what was your thought process at the time you said you were a bit kind of it was getting a bit same old same old I suppose fighting Billy Walsh in the final every year win some lose some yeah. oh. I know. Was it was thinking back then you know I just I think I was sort of lured by the the dazzling lights of being a pro you know every every fighter wants to be a world champion we all want to be world champions in the world when we, when we start boxing and I think maybe I was just lured by the big promoter and stuff like that. Frank Warren, we we got um, we got introduced by Harry Mullen. The, the, he was the editor of the Boxing News at the time. Lovely man. Um, he introduced us. Um, Frank made me an offer. It was a good offer and a turn pro. And great times with Frank Warren. Three years was with him. Um, he honoured everything he said he was going to do down to the tea. And um, then do you remember he got shot? Yeah, 1990, he got shot, and things just started weren't going so well for me. My contract just ended when, when where it was just coming to an end. And again, by Hearn, I think I boxed a top the bill on one in New York Hall where the top of the, the main fight fell through, and I was sort of like promoted to the top. Gary Stretch, Gary Stretch, his opponent fell through. That's right. And I think he's supposed to fight um, Baco George. A guy called Baco George who had knocked out, stopped Cornelius Carr, who fought Steve Collins for the World Middleweight title in the point, who I shared a flat with. That was who I shared my the flat with in London for three years. Cornelius Carr, who fought Steve Collins for the World title. Um, so I think a boxing one of Barry's shows 
And then Barry was signing everybody up at the time. I mean, anybody he was he was he was giving he was giving out quite a, a few pound a week. He was, he was paying everybody a weekly wage and putting us up in nice accommodation. So I went went to Barry Hearn. It didn't go so favourably. I, I only stayed about a year. I had four fights, two wins, two losses, and I had lost complete. I think the retreat captain when they lost to Dale Brand for the final eliminator for a British title. I became instead of probably saying why well, I lost the fight, I, I sort of thought I'm not good enough to be a world champion and I'd lost I lost a lot of interest in it. And I didn't want to be hanging about for sort of if I didn't think it was good enough to be a world champion. Dale Brand at that stage had a checkered record. He, I think he had 15 wins, 11 losses or something. He had 20 sort of, wins, 7 losses and a draw. Yeah, and he had some, he had some good wins. He'd gone the, di- yeah. gone the distance with uh, Cristiano Espana only recently. And he, he went on to fight some really good fighters as well. He, he'd he mixed in much higher company than you had at that stage. At tw- you were 12 and 0 for that fight. But he was fighting more regularly. I had about yeah. a year off, I think. I had and to put on. I actually came in, started training for the fight as 26 pound over the weight. And I was really, really getting a tight to do well to it. I mean, really, it was killing me. And the only, the only guy that knows, my mum and dad, was the guy I shared a flat with in his car. He says, listen, just, you can't do this. And you had to weigh in the day of the fight. You had to weigh in at one o'clock. There was no day before weighing. We had a wee bit of time to rehydrate. It was one o'clock weigh-in in the London arena. I actually got a bus and two tubes to get to the, to get to the arena for the weigh-in. Didn't make the weight by... Half a pound, and I mean, I had eaten virtually ver- no solids for about three days. It was just it was drinking, you know, um, carbohydrate drinks. Strength was gone, and I got into the summer. Ernie Fossey got in, and I said, Ernie, I can't do it. My hair was gone. I was really starting to be affected by, the, by the making the weight. And he says, You've only got another quarter of a pound to get out, and I was bang on 10 stone seven. And that was about, I think we got the extension of the way in to two o'clock for me to make the weight. Is this Del Bryan, your first loss? That's my first loss, yeah. yeah, in the London Arena. I mean, it was dead at the weight. And I was absolutely dead. Because you know, obviously you started out, like, really, you started out really bright. Uh, I think you had a first-round knockout, your first one. Did you know, did you notice at the time, I think, um, your first six fights in a row, they were on cards as Nigel Ben was on them as well. Yeah. There was a couple of fights ahead of you in his progress. I think he, your first fight, Ben was in a sixth contest but then every yeah. fight you were on the same card so you're obviously coming up together did you know did you know Ben well? I did I mean Nigel very well and he actually stood at the back of the of the York Hall one night again I got maybe eight I know and he says to me he says listen he says it's, it's going to happen for you he says there's people giving me sponsorships so you're always you know you're always struggling to be a full time pro mm. you know and I I broke my hands twice that first year when I fought I, t- I broke two Two bones in my hand, and uh, so I had a, a bit of time between fights. You know, and you, if you're not bringing in money, you're, you're sort of struggling all the time. That's where Frank Warren came in. Every bill that I had in London was always paid for. I stayed over there, lived in a lovely flat in Whetstone. So, but Nigel Ben was he said, People are giving me tracksuits, a guy's just giving me a car. You know, and it was just, he was just really starting to take off. You know, lovely fella. You know. <laughs> In your eighth fight, uh, you fought Kenilworth Road, Luton Townsground. Uh, yeah. Barry McGuigan, I think it was the second fight of his comeback against Francisco uh, de Cruz. What do you recall of that one? You you fought <laughs> a guy called uh, Martin Smith and it was a no contest. It was probably your yeah. first setback. Yeah. Right? It, uh, maybe apart from the broken hands, obviously, their setbacks, obviously, of course. But this was yeah. a, no, a no contest. 
uh, for was. excessive holding, but I don't actually, according to Boxrec, I don't know who was the one deemed to have been doing excessive holding. So what happened there? Well, he, he disqualified the both of us. Hmm. So there was, it was just a clash of styles. Martin was about six foot one, um, big long range, could whack a bit. And we just rewind that. I was, I was sitting ready to go into the ring and it was, um, there was about, I think it was about 20,000 people in the, in the stadium. And the place was just, the rafters were lifted. We were going bananas, you know, a lot of Irish people. And I was actually blocked up, walking down the tunnel to go to the ring. And then the TV said, no, we don't have time. He's got to go back in again. So I had to go back in the season room, sit in the season room, listen to the McGuigan fight, the, the place going bonkers, you know, with here we go, here we go. And I think I got in the ring. I was last one on then after the main fight. And it was about half 11. And when I got out into the stadium, Kevin, there was about 50 people left in the stadium. They'd all just left after the big fight. And mm-hmm. it was a complete anti-climax. We just seemed to just meet in the ring, in the middle of the ring all the time. And there was a lot of head work. I got, I think it was six stitches in my collarbone. Um, head work. Ernie Fossey said he's, there was bite mark on, on my, on my trapeze muscle. It was just, it was just one end fights. It was just clash of stairs. And, and so, Marvin, you get a place on a stadium show featuring McGuigan and, Obviously, the biggest name in Irish boxing and, and probably UK boxing at the time as well. Yeah. And for you, you're probably excited for in the weeks and the months leading up to it. And then, yeah, yeah like you say, it's such an anticlimax. That's just the way boxing no. goes sometimes, isn't it? Exactly. And I always think it's silly to have a fight after being a fight because everyone just goes home. I don't see the point in just having a fight because every, you know, poor fighters sitting in there. still do it. Poor fighters sitting in the same room listening to the crowd going by mamas and then you walk out and there's maybe a hundred people there it's, it's pointless you know but I'd actually fought on in Pickett's Lock on one of McGuigan's when he had his first comeback fight and I actually was on just with two fights before him and it was, the, the, the atmosphere was electric I, I actually had a good win that night you the first round knockout against Calvin uh, Mortimer wasn't it at Edmonton yeah, yeah. Kevin Mortimer had knocked out Darren Dyer, the guy who knocked me out in the Commonwealth Games. Right. So that was a sort of a little bit of a little bit of um, revenge in that. But again, getting him off Kevin Mortimer, a West fella, and he hit me on the elbow, Kevin, with a almost, almost made a, a, a left hook. And I, I thought, geez, this, this guy, this guy can whack, you know. So I got on the bike a bit and called him a double jab, straight right hand, and down he went. And he, I don't think he was he wasn't stopped very often. But that was a good win for me. Yeah. So, like, you know, at this stage, what what are your? I ask most people because the show is called the Rocky Road, and we know that nobody gets to the top without loads of speed bumps along the way. And some people don't get to where they're looking to go to, but everybody has a dream, you know. And at this stage, you're, I think, you're having fought on the second McGuigan card. It's your tenth fight. You're ten and zero. Yeah. You'll pick up two more wins. Uh, Nineteen eighty nine against Mickey Lloyd. That was the headliner as Gary Stretch's fight against Oliveira was uh, cancelled. And then right, okay. another knockout against Winston May. You go in, you're 12, you're 12 and 0. And what are the, what's the dream? I suppose fight for a British, fight for a European, fight for a world title. Are you confident yeah. at this stage that you can win a world title? Yeah, the dream was very much alive at that stage. Yeah, I was fighting quite regularly. Uh, I was making the weight quite comfortably. And then it just probably matured a bit, spread it a bit, got a bit bigger. And then the, the weight was starting to, the, the make 10, 10 to 7 was starting to kill me. But as I say, the first defeat to Del Bryan, I think it took it too, it took it too much to heart. And I just thought, well, you know, if I can't beat, if I can't get, beat a guy who's lost seven fights, instead of looking at why I lost it and he'd been fighting regularly and was fit and had some good wins, I just took it, I took it to heart too much and 
Did you have um, who was your coach at the time? Did, and I suppose you you definitely weren't plugged into the sort of uh, assets that the the boxers these days are plugged into. Like I, I mean, they have obviously strength and conditioners, but they have sports psychologists, sports scientists, nutritionists, all this sort of thing. They can reset and go again a lot yeah. easier. And like you say, you took this one a bit hard. We had Eamon McCauley on the show a couple of months back, and he kind of said the same. Once he lost yeah. one or two, like the confidence drained, and the belief that you could get back to where you were. And I suppose boxing is so much about confidence. You see then, Kevin, my, well, I turned pro with Frank Ward and you remember a fighter called Georgie Collins? Remember George? No. Georgie Collins had 35 unbeaten fights, 30, 35, 35 unbeaten fights, and he was about 19 at the time. And it was a massive sort of um, emphasis put on an unbeaten record. Maybe it was just in my head, but just sort of thought, if I lose a fight, TV company isn't what I'm going to show my fights. Promoter's not going to put you on a show. Manager's going to lose a bit of interest. So you always had this pressure of like staying unbeaten. And instead of what I said earlier on, instead of just saying, well, no, I lost that fight because I couldn't do the weight, blah, blah, blah. It's just said it. it. You know, there's was, it was that much of an emphasis put on an unbeaten record. And it's, it's, it's I should have just, Regrouped on my game, but a lot of the desire had gone out of me because of that loss. You know, it was just maybe the victim of what was going on at the time. You know, there's always this thing to hold on that unbeaten record, but you, you actually learn more in defeat. Yeah. You know, if you go in, you knock everybody out. The game will go back to Nigel Ben, knocking everybody out. Um, nobody could go to this with him. Then he fights Mega Watson. Mega Watson schools him. You know, so it was just that it was just it was it wasn't really learning the way Michael Watson was knocking everybody out. Yeah, learning but he was he was able to uh, to find a way back to the summit. Yeah, uh, Ben was. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Like you yeah. you came back from your first loss with a win against Paris Johnson, but then back to the Royal Albert Hall, the the scene of your debut, suffered yeah. your second loss against uh, loss against Newton Barnett. Yeah, stopped uh, in the sixth round. In the yeah. fight that preceded uh, Chris Eubank against Reginaldo dos Santos, the Brazilian guy, the one that he's very famous for knocking him out with the first punch, thrown in anger, and then staring down into the camera. Your, okay. Yours was the fight before, and yeah. that one really seemed to, just going by the, the facts and figures, that one really seemed to derail your career slightly. It did, yeah. Tell us the story about what happened. Yeah, I just wasn't, I wasn't motivated. I wasn't putting the work in the gym. and I think it won the first six rounds. Their first five rounds, and he, he, they just he had muscled me and could bang a bit. Newton Barnett was one of them journeymen that was better than a journeyman. You know, he, I think he, he gave Cristiano Spagna all sorts of trouble. Was I've been hearing feedback after they've been really been training really hard, he'd doing a lot of sparring with Lord Hunnigan and stuff like that. So, um, again, I just the desire, the, the, the belief in the team wasn't there. I wasn't putting the work in, Kevin, to be truthful. So, that's what happened. What gym were you, what gym were you boxing out of? Who was who yeah, your biggest influence? Then it was Matchroom, but from a first to, up until I, until I lost to Dale Brand, my trainer was Ernie Fawcett, the famous Ernie Fawcett. Yeah. He, he was uh, aligned with Frank Warren at the time very much. So, you know, and me and Ernie got on really well, really good pro trainer, but it was very much just you done you done your work and away you went. There was none of strength and conditioning. There was no diet, dietary needs. It was just yeah, you had to eat less and make the weight, you know, and that's basically what you've done. Yeah. You know, instead of knowing what to eat, when to eat it, and all that sort of thing. The game has come on. Boxing really hasn't evolved that much, but when you look at sort of training techniques and weight making techniques, 
A big plus was being able to weigh in the day before, which they're doing now for safety needs because a lot of people were were getting um, dehydrated, which happened to me. But so, but the actual boxers, I don't think there's any boxers now that would beat any boxers from the 50s, 60s, 70s. You know, the heavyweights are bigger, they're joggernauts now. Is there anybody would have beat uh, George Foreman now? Would have, you know, I don't think boxing evolved that much. I think training techniques, dietary um, requirements have all, have all come on a bit, but fighters are boxing have evolved the way other sports have, in my opinion. Well, competition is the best for uh, improving boxers, isn't it really? And I think there's not as much competition now. You need to be busy. You know, yeah. you, need, you need to be a busy fighter. It'll be a hard fighter to be. You know? And that, that's kind of where it petered out for you because if, well, you, look at, if you look at your your activity level drops off after kind of ninety one. Um, we've got you. We you've, so you you rematch Barnett, beat him points. Yeah, you suffer your third loss to Jason Rowe, and that one seems to stop things dead. Yeah, same thing again. Um, didn't put the work in. One seven rounds, six rounds before it was stopped. Halfway through the seventh round, I was exhausted. I just remember being absolutely exhausted, and if they caught me, caught me a good enough left hook. But just the, the train happened, and I actually started on the pub then in Holloway Road in London with my cousin. So we, we were on a famous pub and called the Half Moon. So I had seen splints, I had bad hands. I just thought I walked away from the boxing for a few years, um, got into the pub trade. We, uh, right, so that's where those 20 months went because you were gone, yeah. you were gone for 20 months before you came back. That's in the, right. pub, the yeah. pub trade in North London, that good stuff. Yeah. The Holloway Road. Still, um, still a roaring trade at the time. Still full of Irish in, around that time. Oh, bunged, bunged every night with Irish people. You know, it was a big pub to have. Uh, Conway Brothers owned it, and we got it up and running. We actually got Byron McGuigan up to do a night for us. He sang, and the place was absolutely bunged. You know, we sold, we sold every drink we had. We there was a pub down the street, uh, and they actually lent us a couple of barrels of, of Guinness and stuff and a couple of bottles of vodka. I mean, the place was absolutely rammed. You know, no fair play to Barry for, for doing that for us. And we've also been friends, you know, further on in my life. He, he, he um, gave me a great opportunity as well when I, when I done the movie with Daniel Delius. Yeah. It sort of all, it all came through Barry, um, Dean Powell, Dean Powell. And Barry was actually thinking, who could he get? He was in around wealthyweight, late middleweight, middleweight. And Dean Powell said, well, where did he ask Damien? And Barry got on the phone and asked me and, I got the part and stuff. Um, we'll, we'll, we'll get there in a minute. We've got yeah. to just we've got to wrap wrap up the fights first. Um, yeah. But twenty months out of the ring, you get back, pick up a win against Boson. Is it Boson Harrell in December '92? Um, and then you're kind of linked up with Barry Hearn, and he's trying to start off an Irish thing. Yeah, you go back to no, the Ulster Hall, and you're fighting at home. I actually linked up with a guy called Owen McMahon, who run uh, shows on a quite regular basis. Um, no TV, but very little TV he had. Um, so he got me a fight in Bristol in the Fabulous Rainbow Club with Chris Sanagar's show, uh, Box Bozen Hall. Um, big why, him come, why come back after 20 months and how difficult was it? It was very difficult because he asked me to weigh 10 stone 12 and it again. It near killed me to do the weight, but uh, I sort of got a wee bit of a de- desire back. I was back living at home, Kevin was back home in Belfast. I'd moved back to London. And back living in my mum's and the, the cooking and the cleaning and everything would be done for me. The older brother Frank was looking after me in the training stuff. 
we were very knowledgeable on the boxing side of things. He was only his oldest brother in the house, my sister's the oldest, Maria. Um, he looked after the training. Uh, we took Bosen Hall in Bristol, and then Owen ra- ran a show in Ulster Hall, where top the bill against Ian McGee for a an eliminator, a final eliminator for the Irish title against Terry McGee, who's Eamon McGee's older brother. Uh, Terry lived in Wales. I stopped James McGee and it's the second round, I think it was. Bang on bullseye right there. Yeah, absolutely. And then Owen was running a great lot, was running shows. He got in touch with Matt Tinley, who looked after uh, Wayne McCulloch. And we boxed in Maysfield. Wayne topped the bill. It was his first fight back home as a pro. You've read my yeah. notes here. Seriously, Damien, yeah. Damien. We're on Zoom. We're a few hundred miles away. But are you reading my notes? Like, what's going on? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's... that's be Rob yeah, Peters. T- technical yeah. knockout in the third round. It was Wayne McCullough's homecoming. He was 6-0 at the time, but obviously he had won the silver medal at the Olympic Games. Yep. You know, up-and-comer. Eddie Futch. Was Eddie Futch there and everything that night? Eddie Futch was there. Sale Torrance brother over Jim and Kelf. Matt Tinley was there. Uh, my, my brother, Frank... I know Owen McMahon had a great conversation with Eddie Fox. I mean, the man was just a fountain of knowledge. They were just sitting in the, in the you know, in the midst of a god. You know, I can't remember many world champions, 18 world champions, Eddie Fox trained. But they're sitting there in the Holy Trinity, sitting talking to the Eddie Fox. Phil Torrance was, was also over. Um, who did Wayne McCulloch fight? And I no, can't remember who fought in the match. Oh, he fought the um, Con. Comic Mull. Have we, have we got that in your notes? No. You fought Comic Mull from Lauren. I can, I can take it up now, though. Hang on a second. Yeah, yeah. I think that's who we fought. I fought Comic Mull. Are you yeah. sure it was? Is that right? Yeah, it is. Yeah, Jesus. Yeah. Stoppage in the third round. Conic Mullen. Yeah. You're, not, you're on fire with this stuff. It's ridiculous. Well, yeah. right <laughs> And then we went to uh, the Point. Yes. Yes, he did. Where Wayne McCulloch fought Fabrice Benishu for the European title. I fought a guy from Brenton Inglestable. Um, oh, God, what's his name? can't remember. Rick North. Rick North. Rick North, yeah. Difficult fight. Typical Ingle fighter, moving a lot, moving a lot. Um, I'd actually sparred with Danny Juma from Barney Eastwood Stable. And uh, Danny Jimmy hit me that hard. He moved my rib cage. I went down there. He's actually all my uh, intercostal muscles were all inflamed. And I went down to get a bit of physio. And the physio said to me, Have you been in a car accident? And I said, No, sparring with Danny Jimmy. I mean, Danny can whack. You know, it was a very, very big puncher. So I'd taken that hit off Danny about 10 days before the fight. And shouldn't have been in the ring with, with Rick North. But again, I didn't want to be left on the sidelines again. So I took the fight and more or less just boxed the fight with, well, I fought the fight with, with one hand. But you, it, was okay. did, it was okay. I got to, the points. Got the to points be able right. to, yeah, to be able to pull out a win like that, um, you know, against a tough, tricky fighter while injured. And you're kind of back with a little bit of momentum, just ever yeah. so slightly. Yeah. Now, you're not fighting that regularly, but you're back. And uh, do you feel like you can kind of get it back to get the magic back? Yeah, I was sort of thought got got the desire back and sparring was going. I was actually down in I was down in Eastwich, I was down with Barney and I was sparring with Cristiano Spagna, the world welterweight champion, and I was I was given as good as what I was getting. And testimony is that when Cristiano fought Ike Quarter over in Paris, 
uh, BJ said to me, Damien, you're coming along and sparred with him. They brought over they brought over an American uh, sparring partner. He lost it one day, Kevin, and Crisando knocked him out and put him in the Royal Hospital and he, he flew home. They brought over uh, is it Michael Smythe with British Salmon. He came over. He sparred for two days, says, no, I'm going home. And that's, I'd done the whole camp with, with Crisando. And Barney said to me at the end, he said, right, they're coming to Paris with us. He says, as a, as a thank you for for sparring with Crisando. I was there sitting ringside when Crisando lost the egg quarter, which sitting there that close, the, the velocity of the punches, you know, and I'd been sparring with Crisando. It was frightening. And Barney Eastwood said, I never thought I would see Crisando beat. Because at, at the weigh-in, um, it was the Carey brothers, Michael and Michelle, and they'll come out with call the other Carey brother. Some of the guys who would say that, that Barney, would you like to have a bet? And Barney said, yeah, no problem. Where do you want to bet? And man said 100,000. And Barney said, pounds or dollars? And the guy said, no, 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 French francs, which mm-hmm. at the time was already 1,000 pounds. And Barney went, yeah, covered. So when when Ed Cordy knocked out Crisando, he was the 10th round. After the aftermath, so we were all sitting in the hotel, and I said to the PJ, would you would you back them a hundred thousand? He said, I'd have backed them a million. He says, I never thought I'd see him beat. So, and Barney always had his his beliefs that uh, Cusando had been nobbled because he, he weighed something like ten stone four. He'd taken really bad diarrhea before the fight and stuff like that. So he thought somebody had got some of this food. I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. Did you ever hear that sort of stuff going on in boxing? Like, for real? Yeah. Well, back then, you know, it was sort of, you know, you heard stories like that. And we yeah. were actually staying the party in some big fancy hotel, but Barney had uh, got his own wee, sort of like a wee boutique family run hotel. And so he knew who was going to be in, in the hotel and stuff. You know? But he reckoned it was a wee guy, was, was looking after us, a wee, wee guide fella who was very, got very friendly with us. But what a fight. You know, sitting there, Quarty knocked him out in the, I think it was the 10th round. And it was a bad knockout. He knocked him out. Crisando uh, was maybe out for five or six minutes. Yeah. Did, you ever, did you ever get knocked out in your career, like in sparring or a proper contest, like a bad one that you kind of woke up from and thought, you know, people at back home will be worried about this? Uh, no. They also sort of like, you know, so I also walked out of the ring. Well, except for Selkie Jones. I walked out of the ring there as well. I'm on the last fight. Yeah, that's it. That's that's our final stop on this tour of your professional boxing career. 1995, Ulster Hall, Paul Silky Jones for the WBO Intercontinental. Uh, the undercard is stacked with kind of the next generation of Irish boxers. Even though you're 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 a young man, you've been on the go since '87. But there's yeah. Darren Corbett's on the bill. You know Neil Sinclair, the the new power punchers on the way up. You're fighting Silky Jones. I suppose the winner goes winner. You know winner goes on to something big. Yeah, yeah. Well, Silky won the World Titans next fight. Or that's possibly the fight after the next one, but he, he definitely he won. It was a Bronco McCart, I think he beat for the world title. But yeah, it was, it was a complete embarrassment for me. And it was in, in Ulster Hall. I never lost in Ulster Hall as an amateur or a pro. And place was pretty packed. All my friends, family. And you walk in, you get stopped in the first round. You know, Selgate caught me. Basically what happened, do you remember Kevin Lucian? Kevin Lucian had fought Daniel Santos for the world title. Very big puncher. And we brought Kevin Lucian over to spar with me. And the second last spar, Kevin caught me an absolute pinch of a left hook. And just as the bell went, he didn't see it happening, but he, he 
delivered the punch, but then he sort of turned away and walked that way. I walked back towards my brother and was just was gone. You know, it, it almost put my lights out. Stiff legs. I'm walking towards the the, the, the corner. I remember just this buzzing going on in, in my ears. I thought, oh my God, that was fantastic left out. And one more day of sparring left and we're down the spar the next day. We were sparring down the morning Eastwood and Kevin Lucy said to me, he says, do you mind if we have an easy spar? And I think I was still concussed. It was, you know, still, I still was, was having the effects of the day before with an easy spar, just like a, a move around, toppy toppy. And then, uh, before five days later, I fought Sagi Jones, and I think possibly I still had a bit of concussion because it, it was an okay punch he put me down the first time, the first punch he put me down with, and it was a real weird sensation. He hit me, and I remember looking at the canvas and thinking, where is he? I didn't even realise I was on my knees. I was looking for Sagi Jones, and I was looking at the canvas, and then looked up, and he's standing there. I think Dave Paris was the referee, and I got up and said, I'm okay. And he said, yeah, right, okay. And I thought he was actually saying, no, I'm stopping it. I said, no, no, I'm okay. I'm fine. And he says, yeah, okay, I'm going to let it go on. So he called us together again and, and this, he had me an uppercut that they took my head off. You know, uh, Still tried to get my feet, still tried to say I'm, I'm okay, but sort of fell into Dave Paris's arms. And, uh, for a I announced my retirement to Sky TV. He was on Sky Sports. Um, ended up, I went to the Royal Hospital just for precautionary um, examination, but it was fine. It was just my, my pride was hurt, Kevin. And I knew then, I'd said before, if I lose this, that's me, I'm finished. If I'd have won it, it was a world title fight, but um, I wasn't going to hang about any longer. That was my second sort of bite at the cherry and just um, was it good enough? My dad said it was good enough. It's good enough for me. Um, I thought possibly it was good enough, but just a bit of bad luck with my hands. Didn't get fights at the right time. Struggling to make weight, stuff like that. But no regrets. Loved it. Absolutely loved it. Did it take long to patch up the pride and, and move on with the rest of your life? I didn't go out for a few weeks, Ken. I didn't. I remember going out and I was pretty well known in Belfast office at the time. And I remember the guy men men nothing bad, you know, he's, he was a, a bus driver, as bus drivers are. And I think it was my first time out, it'll be ten days. And he, he the window down his bus and he said, Unlucky Damon. You know, and I was like, Oh God, when's this gonna stop? You know? And I just got on with my life then. I, I bought a house and the mortgage needed to be paid and stuff like that. So just started working, started driving a taxi and just got on with sort of doing things that normal people do, you know. So Yeah. I always feel sorry for boxers who get like knocked out in the yeah. first round in their hometown. It can happen, it's happened so so often, but you know, it's 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 a bit it's a bitter pill to swallow, I'm sure. It is, it was. It's you know, it's for what was it like something like I started boxing with nine, so in almost 20 years, that was the only thing that I wanted to do. And then all of a sudden you stop and you say, Well, what what am I gonna do now? You know, I've nothing to fall back on, I've no no trade, of you know, I don't have a pot full of money and stuff like that. So you have to go out and start doing what you have to do to make things, you know, to survive and stuff like that. But I would say a lot of fighters who have, who think they have a career and then it just ends, there's a bit of depression that sets in after, you know, because your dreams are over. And just you know, what am I going to do? And all of a sudden you went from being a boxer with a bit of direct direction till, you know, nothing more or less, just out and 
Uh, I was chatting to uh, Alex Arthur about this and he was saying how after a couple couple of months after his uh, retirement, he started putting on weight and getting quite depressed uh, about life. And then he he had a a chat with someone. I think he decided to take take life after boxing with the same professional approach that he took life in boxing. And that's what helped him. He He just brought a full going attitude to, you know, getting himself back back into the joy of living, you know, fitness, yeah. working out, training. And that's what worked for him. But yeah, so many boxers do struggle struggle in the year or five post-retirement. Yeah. Because yeah. it takes so much, it takes so much concentration and work and effort. And you know, you you're not picking up a trade in your teenage years when other people are working to become chippies, sparks, going to college, whatever it is. You're, you know, you're national senior champion at the age of 18. And that doesn't just come overnight. That comes from years and years and years of sacrifice. Yeah, 100%. And again, my body was breaking down a bit. I was, took shin splints, broke my hands. But I had, um, I didn't really have a break since I was like nine years of age. I was boxing all, you were boxing all the, you were just training all the time, you know. And from like, again, from like 17, since you won the juniors, it was just full-time training because you'd had the, the, the European Championships first, then the Commonwealth Games, World Championships, then turn pro, then you're trying to keep your pro record intact. It was just full-time, constantly training. So the, the, my body started maybe breaking down a bit as well. You know? And then all of a sudden, all that stops. And you're going, what am I going to do now? You know? So I, can, but I wish I had the same outlook as what Alex Arthur had and sort of say, right, I'll put as much effort into being the next chapter in my life. Yeah, he's, he's, still, he's suffered for a while. We'll have Alex on the show in a couple of weeks as well for anyone who's yeah. listening in. Um, you did catch a break when um through through your contacts in boxing. You yeah. got a, you got yourself a new sparring partner, the the world's best actor. Yeah, Daniel Day Lewis. Yeah. That was like that was an absolute honey time I had it was fantastic. You know, I went from I was actually driving a taxi for a while and then I was putting cable down. So I was just doing a manual job working on the roads. And it was winter time, it was snowing. I'd come in, I'd say, we just bought a house. Me and my, my, my missus had just bought a house and no, no children at the time. And I came home from work. There was no mobiles. There was no, none of this today. And, you know, it was 1997. And my mum had been on the phone. And she was actually talking to Andrew, my, my partner. And Andrew said, my mum was on the phone. They wanted to go down and spar with Daniel Day-Lewis. And I was like, what the hell? You know, one, one, I'm 14 and a half stone now. And I put on like three and a half stone. I hadn't boxed for a couple of years. I was, certainly wasn't in any condition to go down and start sparring anybody. So, actually, my older brother Frank was on. He said, they are making this massive movie here in, in, Dub- in Dublin and Ireland, he says. Um, and they're looking you to go down. Barry's been on the phone. Barry McGuigan's been down. They've been on the phone looking for you to go down and, and spar with Daniel Day-Lewis. And I was like, right. So the next morning... He said, I wasn't able to ring Barry that night because he was working for Sky TV and it was the way up commentating. So like I said, there's no mobile phones. So I got up, went into work the next day. It was absolutely feeling terrible. I had like a like flu-like symptoms. Snow was thick on the ground. And I was actually was working with my two brothers. And I said, guys, I'm not doing this anymore. I'm going to Hollywood. I didn't even know what I'd have been off the, 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 the part or anything. They were saying, oh, here we go. And I was going about going to be or not to be, you know, messing about. And then I finally rang Barry about quarter to 11, first break. And Barry was on the phone. Ah, oh, yes, Damon, I've been looking for you, looking to get a holy and blah, blah, blah. Have you heard of me? I said, no, I haven't heard a thing. He says, right, 
I'm going to give you a number to ring. As soon as I hang up, ring this number and they'll take care of everything. So he gave me the number. I was sitting in a, I was standing in the telephone box in the Ormo Road on a payphone and I rang the number and it was the assistant director, Tommy Gormley. And Tommy says, yes, Damon, blah, blah, blah. Would you be interested in coming down? I was like, why, yeah, of course we will. He said, well, do you want us to send a driver off for you? He said, well, I can get, I can jump on the train. You know, I'm, I'm well used to going to Dublin on a train. He says, well, can you get down here tomorrow? I said, yeah. So right down into College Street Station, um, there's a guy standing with my name on a, on a cardboard. There was a guy, uh, Jerry Fearn, who called the guy. And Jerry was the transport manager for any of the movies that was happening. And he had a big Mercedes. He opened the back door. And I was like, I'm not sitting in the front. You know, I'm not going to sit in the back. No, he says he'd go jump in the ice list and jump in the front of them. Drove us across to Phoenix Park. Was met by, at this stage, I didn't know it was Tommy's wife, a girl called Sarah uh, Gorman. She says, I'll show you your trailer. It had a trailer with a name on it. Mm. And I was going, what the hell is this all about? So it was a real bad storm in England. And Daniel Day-Lewis and Byron McGuigan, plane couldn't take off in town. So Sarah said to me, Damon, just walk around the set or if you want anything, coffee or fruit or something to eat or just you tell me what you want. So she closed the door, said there's magazines to read there and I'm sitting there going, what's this all about? And I'm like, one minute I'm on the Oma Road digging a hole. Now I'm in, in Phoenix Park with uh, cast and crew in the, the, the movie. So I was in there for about for two hours just walking about and then I was sitting in the trailer and Barry came in how are you, blah, 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 and start talking. Day Lewis was standing behind him, big long coat on, flat cap, you know, sort of stuff. Sort of almost shy, you know. So Barry said, are you doing? I said, Barry, I haven't done any training. And then he introduced me, turned around and said, this is Daniel. And I said, how are you? And fine. And I said, look, I'm going to be truthful. I said, I'm probably over 14 stone. And Barry said, listen, don't worry about that. We'll have a good four months to get the weight off you. But they just want to screen test you to start off with to see whether you're you're, you're going to get them the the part. So I put a pair of shorts on, Kevin, and it was like you know you just feel as if your belly's hanging over your shorts, and put a pair of boxing boots on, get in, and was sort of thinking, Daniel Day Lewis, he was a method actor, and I bet he's really good at this. And he's going to come out and try and take my head off. Mm-hmm. I was sort of thinking, I could get I could get maybe hurt here on boxing because near three years, near two and a half years. And I went, um, yeah, yeah. And I sort of like, look now, sort of, you know, is this going to be a full spar? Well, yeah. You know? So I'm getting spar room and I knew right away that he was still very much, you know, very novelty and stuff like that. So when he came in, the first clinch, he, he sort of like tightened and he wasn't relaxing. So I turned around to Jim Sheridan and I said to Jim, is this amateur boxing or professional boxing? And Jim said, well, it's going to be professional boxing. So I said to Daniel, I said, listen, just relax. Um, don't be tightening up. I said, move your head a bit more. And I said, Bob, move a lot more. You're standing a bit too straight. So I think that was the point that Jim Sheridan says, well, this fella, he's not afraid to tell, tell him what he's doing wrong. So I think I've done four or five rounds sparring run, but it was, it, was, it was easy enough stuff. And then after three days, uh, uh, Jim and all the Americans were being driven, driven around Dublin, showing all the movie, well, the, the that's going to be shot and I thought well I must have got the must have got the part that said to Barry why have I got the part and Barry says I don't know he says Damon if I find out I'll let you know so Jim took me down the street and he says Damon we're going to offer you the part 
you know, you don't have to say yes straight away. And I was like, no, no, I want it. You know, so <laughs> uh, six months, six months was on again. I was there three months before it started. My my scenes were finished in June, and I thought that's me. I have to go home. And then Daniel said to me, "said Do you mind staying the very last day of filming?" So was good. I lived in the Burlington Hotel for six months. Had a driver and everything. So boxing gave me that, you know. And the Burlington has great boxing history after uh, with acting as well because uh, Matthew McConaughey once held the spit bucket for Jim Rock in a fight at the the Burlow. I didn't know that. Yeah, he did, yeah. But yeah. what was uh, what was so what was Day Lewis like? Uh, did, like Barry McGuigan likes to say that um, after his intensive kind of sparring and training for a long time, he was so serious about his boxing that had he had him, you know, a lot sooner, he could have got him to British title levels. What, what about you? What's your own assessment about it? He was promoter talk. He, he was good he, though. Yes, he, he had he had he had big kahunas. He had big balls. He. he he sparred with me. He sparred with uh, another pro. Um, the guy was in the movie. You call him? Oh, can't remember. But Clayton Stewart. Clayton Stewart. He went out and he was winging shots at Day Lewis, and McGregor was going, "What the hell is he trying to, he trying to knock him out?" But listen, the two were tore in each other in the centre of the ring, and it was sort of that day that we both sort of looked at each other and went, "Yeah, he doesn't mind having a bit of a tear up." I mean, were you doing? Um, were you doing like full? Sp- like spar- contact spars, body spars. What were you doing, like for, to simulate full, the headshots? Full contact. Full contact. Full contact spar. Yeah. Full contact. And so he, he he was giving you his best, uh, and you were probably just you know giving him sixty percent, seventy percent. Yeah, exactly. And uh, but every day I sort of looked around and go up up the under me because I, I didn't want to be just taking him around and not you know if he done something wrong, I tried to punish him for it. Mm. You know, but obviously wouldn't put the full the full wall up into it, but. If you start getting a wee bit, you know, boisterous, it would sort of put a wee bit of meat behind the shots. But, I mean, him and Clayton, they stood in the middle of the ring and uh, the whole set all stopped. I mean, it was proper punches being, you know, hooks and uppercuts and we were wallowing each other. And we were, we were actually sitting and standing there going, if he hits him here and breaks his nose or breaks his jaw, the whole movie's yeah. it's going to be put on hold. So actually, Barry McGuigan said to me, said, Damon, would you have a word with it? Because we said them after the first round, Clayton, it doesn't have to be as intense as that. Then he was like, well, I'm not going to get bothered by anybody. And we said, we're not asking to get bothered, but the guy's never boxed before. And you're sort of, you're laying it on a wee bit heavy and he's trying to respond to it. And so the second round started mm-hmm. the same. The player just stood toe to toe and went at it again. So we're kind of so, hey, you know, he had a big awareness. The only, he possibly lacked a wee bit of strength, a wee bit of that sort of strength that you grow up with in boxing. Yeah. You know, I'm not saying we're Superman or anything like that, but it's just, it was just a, just, you know, his technique and all was good. And his, as I say, his kahunas where he, you know, he was, he was, just, he was his game as well, as well as any fighter would have been, you know. Well, and it's the soles of our feet harden, you know. Yeah. The soles of our feet harden from walking on them constantly. So, like a boxer would just have that hardiness from being in a, yeah. being in contest their whole lives. Yeah, getting hit all the time. Yeah. Yeah. It was actually 40. He was 40 when, he, when when that movie was done. You know, it's 25 years ago. It was 90, well, 97, out in 98. Did you so, enjoy your time as a movie star, the, the reflected glow of uh, being on the silver screen? Yeah, spoiler rot. I was, and I was, and I was sort of a reward for what I didn't get out of boxing. You know, I was treated like, I was treated like, like Delius was treated, you know, safe, staying in the Burlington Hotel, giving a driver anywhere I wanted to go. Like the driver brought me, 
And uh, then that uh, that led on to another. We moved on with the Kelly brothers, a uh, big German group, Irish of Irish origins. Um, they the, the were like QT in Germany. These these guys. And he made a movie over in Dublin, and it was about, I think it was about three weeks after we'd finished the boxer. I was actually going to England uh, on the flight, and I just got my first mobile phone, and this guy went, would you do another movie? And I was like, my God, is this going to keep going and going and going? Yeah. But it, doesn't, <laughs> it didn't work out again. But again, it was brought down to Dublin. Stayed a month in the Burlington, and we shot a wee, like a 30-minute movie called uh, Fortune's Fool. about two brothers who boxed and... It was it was well it was well received. We came first in the Galway Film Festival, so and then things just dried up. Kevin, it was like it was when's the phone gonna ring again? Yeah. But I have done I have done bits and pieces. You know, I do keep out my hand in and sort of uh, done another wee movie with um, a wee guy Nick Dearman. It was great. He he called it the boxer as well. It was a boxing movie and got a got a good part in that. Choreographed the fight scenes in it for him and stuff like that. Okay. So. It's um, it's, it's so nice that, to as boxing exits go, that's an absolute, that's a lovely soft landing. I know it came a couple of years after the retirement, but that's a lovely way to go out, you know, rather than yeah. in, in recent yeah. years, you did a bit of management. And uh, now are, do you have any day to day involvement in boxing apart from, you know, coaching to keep fit people? No, I don't. Kevin, I let my toe back in again with the Ryan Green. He got, he got the. Uh, no, ten fights, nine wins. Um, got the semi final the prize fighter. I remember. Um, yeah, yeah. trained him for for that in a couple of fights. Yeah, that was a year. Um, the guy from Dungiven won it. Uh, Eamon O'Kane, did it? Did he? Eamon, did Eamon, Ryan get a cut in that fight? Actually, Eamon, Eamon dropped. Uh, Ryan cut him badly yeah. and dropped him. I think in the second or third round. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah Eamon won it that year. That's right, yeah, yeah. It was the same night that McCluskey yeah, lost to uh, yeah. the American guy. Chop Chop. Who was that? Yeah, uh, Paul McCluskey lost to Chop Chop Corley that night, didn't he? And, uh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's right. Yeah, that was that was it was a good it was a double. Yeah, yeah it was a double. Try, yeah. That's right. Huh? Yeah. Ambitious. So where where have you been your boxing come from, Kevin? Have you ever boxed or have you? Uh no, no. Uh, my interest in it, like I was a you know a fan as a kid growing up. Yeah. Of the mainly of the, the big fights, you know, the, the box office stuff, the big nights. Didn't know too much about the domestic scene, but then um, you know, as a kid watching the watching the guys in the Olympics, that that really was special. Wayne McCullough, Michael Carute, yeah, and Francie Barrett those years later, Brian McGee and the rest of the boys. Yeah. And then um, yeah, my, my interest then came kind of later in life. And the only in-ring stuff I've done is just training. Like I'm like the keep fitters that you're yeah. earning a crust off. I've done a few rounds with a few of them, like uh Michael Conlon over the years and Paul Griffin down in Dublin and a few others. And I enjoy it, like I enjoy it, but I don't, I don't like getting punched in the face. I've never had a competitive fight or anything like that, but I've had a lot of spars, hundreds of rounds of spars. It's, it's enjoyable. Oh, There's another name you just threw in there, Paul Griffin. What a talent. What a, Brilliant. What a, yeah, what a legend. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. And his older brother, Noel. Noel yeah. was possibly a year older than me. I remember him as a juvenile, just thinking, wow, what a talent. And then Paul came came along after. We know Lee was a butcher, I think. It was, yeah, uh, talented yeah. family. And there's there's a new generation coming along. Young Cody Griffin, the nephew, Paul's nephew as well. So, yeah, they're flying it. Um, Damien Denny, we've had you on the Rocky Road for. We've taken up enough of your day, I think, at this stage. But it's been really enjoyable hearing your story from start to finish here. 
And uh, was, yeah, have you any final words to tell people? No, that's probably about the height of it. Yeah, and if you're if you're a young pro, train hard and, and don't let your first defeat sort of be the be all and end all. You know, if if you've got a goal, take Alex Arthur's um, reasoning, go for it. You know, yeah. so good my advice. Kevin, thanks very much. I really enjoyed that. And it's nice to reminisce. Good man, Damien. I'm delighted you came on. Thank you very much. And uh, I'll speak again soon. Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. The future isn't scary, not realizing its potential, however, could be. Just like on the recruiting trail, I've seen potential come in many forms as a coach. Learn more at Invesco.com QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc.,